Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to October's edition of Recharge by Battery Materials Review. In this month's edition of the podcast, we have an update with Marco Romero, CEO of TSX Venture-listed Euromanganese, about his company's plans in the most chronically underinvested battery raw material market. The interview was recorded just after the Tesla Battery Day, which highlighted high-purity manganese as a key battery material. And for us, it was the biggest winner of Tesla's comments. This month's focus article in Battery Materials Review highlights the underinvestment in battery raw materials over the past three years. In our view, it is now the single biggest risk to the electric vehicle event. Since 2018, 50 billion US dollars has been raised for new battery capacity, 60 billion for EV capacity, but only 8 billion has been raised for raw materials capacity. And raw materials capacity takes two to three years longer to build than the others. There is now a material risk, in our view, of supranormal raw material prices over an extended period, which are likely to impact battery prices and thus EV makers' profitability. You can check out our website for more info or subscribe for the full analysis. We also include a feature on Tesla's battery day and the key winners and losers off the back of that. You can find more details on our views regarding the battery day on our LinkedIn blog. Moving on to the news now, and in the raw material space, there was a fair amount of news flow in September. Both the EU and the US continued to expend political hot air about the shortage of critical raw materials, without doing an awful lot towards funding new projects for now. The EU launched the European Raw Materials Allowance, and President Trump declared a national emergency in the mining industry. Nice that they understand that there's a problem, but funding new projects quickly has to be the focus now. I wanted to highlight a number of news items which discuss OEMs targeting a more sustainable raw materials supply chain. Tesla announced that it will join the Fair Cobalt Alliance for Artisanal Cobalt Mining and DRC, alongside Glencore and Huawei Copper. BMW has gone a different route, opting out of sourcing cobalt from the DRC altogether, while Volkswagen has introduced a new sustainability rating for suppliers. Finally, an important news item for battery makers looking to source high-purity manganese. Ghana has decided to cap manganese carbonate exports at 5 million tonnes per annum, presumably looking to attract investment in downstream capacity. Carbonate ore from Ghana is one of the biggest sources that is used to manufacture high-purity manganese for NMC batteries. Shipments had been expected to rise to 7 million tonnes per year in coming years, and this ban could put a real crimp on proceedings. September saw CATL pull the trigger on its first investments from the 2.8 billion US dollar pot that it allocated to invest in the battery value chain, with the acquisition of an 8% stake in Canadian-listed Neolithium, which is developing a project in Argentina. The transaction price of $11 per resource tonne of lithium carbonate equivalent looks like a great deal for CATL. It was a second consecutive month of elevated capital raising activity in battery materials, with 380 million US dollars being raised. But the 842 million US dollars raised in the space in the third quarter pales into insignificance compared to the 6.4 billion dollars raised for batteries and 14.3 billion 
raised for EVs. We continue to caution that money needs to be invested in battery raw materials expansionary capacity and very quickly. Moving downstream now, and Korean battery makers continue to dominate 2020 output, more than doubling their market share between January and July. LG Chem is now the world's biggest battery maker with a 25% market share. There was an interesting study into plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, which highlighted that their CO2 emissions are two to four times higher in the real-world conditions than under test conditions, suggesting that the environmental savings of going the PHEV route are significantly lower than previously thought. This suggests that BEVs are a better vehicle. There were three big policy announcements this month, the EU's decision to increase its 2030 emission reduction target to 60% from 40%, the decision to ban sales of new ICE vehicles in California from 2035, and China's statement that it is targeting carbon neutrality by 2060. Those are all massively positive for the sector. And of course, we also await the outcome of the US elections. A Democrat victory would see the adoption of the Green New Deal, which would also be extremely supportive. There was bad news for copper bulls this month, with news that General Motors is looking to adopt a wireless battery management system for its EVs going forward. That could potentially eliminate as much as 40 kilograms of copper wiring per vehicle. I wanted to flag Chinese EV producer Xpeng's decision to join fellow producer Neo in offering battery rental. This is expected to lower its upfront EV prices by up to 30%. We wonder whether this mechanism may become more widespread in the market, particularly given our concerns about the direction in which battery costs are going. Finally, consultant Wood McKenzie forecasts that global stationary storage capacity would grow at a CAGR of 31% through to 2030. And he also reported that US residential storage deployments continued to grow in the second quarter of 2020, shrugging off a slowdown in solar installations. In our data roundup this month, Europe continues to lead the way in plug-in EV sales and global PEV sales are now in positive growth on a year-to-date basis. We understand that most EV models are sold out in Europe because of a shortage of batteries and EU27 lithium-ion battery imports hit a record level in June. We look forward to seeing more recent data on this trend. In raw materials, Australian spodumene concentrate exports were higher in August And indeed, conversations with industry participants and traders have suggested that we're a point of inflection for the lithium market. We expect lithium prices to start to rise in the fourth quarter. September was a mixed month for battery material equities, with Tesla's battery day impacting equity performance for a number of segments. Our manganese basket was the big winner, up 61% for the month, given the clear conclusion that high-purity manganese demand was likely to be more than forecast, and also given the shortage of suitable projects around at the moment. Lithium equities initially sold off on the news that Tesla intended to build its own lithium mines, but then common sense prevailed when the market realised that that may be many years in the future, and that the magnitude of Tesla's battery expansion would likely bring more demand, not less. It was a torrid month for exchange-traded metals and related equities, with LME nickel down 6%, even though nickel sulfate prices were up 6%. Nickel stocks, unfortunately, went the way of LME nickel prices. So that's the end of our news roundup for this issue. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me, or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. 
So in my view, one of the biggest winners from the Tesla battery day was high purity manganese. With that in mind, I'm delighted to welcome Marco Romero, who's chief executive of TSX Venture and ASX listed Euro Manganese. Marco, welcome to Recharge. Thank you very much, Matt. It's great to be back, <laughs> especially on a day like today. <laughs> Definitely. So let's just start off with the material because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the manganese market. Can you explain the difference in the market size between high purity manganese, which is your market of the type used for batteries, and the manganese that's used in the steel industry? High purity manganese comes largely in two forms. One is an electrolytic manganese metal, which we call HPEMM. And the other one is a sulfate product that's used largely for making battery cathodes, uh, which we call HPMSM. If you were to take the manganese content of that market, order of magnitude, it's about 100,000 tons a year currently, but that is rising very, very rapidly now with the growth and demand driven by the electric vehicle industry and its batteries. If you look at the manganese, market in total. And that's largely the manganese ore markets and the ferroalloys that are derived for it, which are principally used to make steel. That's about 17 million tons of ore per annum, or approximately six to seven million tons a year of manganese contained. So the difference is quite significant. You're looking at 60, 70 times the size of the high purity market for that. Okay. I mean, I think that there's a real issue with this because obviously the EU has put out its critical raw materials list recently and they identified a lot of battery raw materials within that, but they didn't identify manganese primarily because of the steel industry. But perhaps that's a mistake given the scarcity of resources that are suitable for upgrading to high purity manganese. One of the common misunderstandings is that if you have manganese, manganese ore, you can make high-purity manganese products. It's roughly true, but that comes at a cost. And the cost is either an economic one, because it's very challenging to refine these products into high-purity chemicals, essentially, or high-purity refined metals. But it's also an environmental cost to achieve the types of purities of these products that are required particularly by the battery industry, requires a, essentially a, a most total removal of a whole suite of deleterious impurities that can be contained in the product and that can have very significant adverse effects on battery safety, battery performance, and even in, can affect the process of making the cathodes and, and other parts of the battery. So the devil is in the detail. The commodity itself, the metal itself is abundant. It's the fourth most traded metal in the world. But the hard part is economically and sustainably turning it into these high purity products. And the vast majority of manganese ores are either poorly located or are just not suitable for that economic and sustainable processing. So just stepping back into that, as I understand it, the ore body type that's necessary to make high purity manganese is carbonate minerals, whereas ferromanganese uses oxide minerals. How many 
carbonate ore bodies are there of sufficient size, do you think, around the world that could be developed? The rule of thumb we use is about 98% of the manganese resources in the world are largely made of oxides. Some of them have some transition ores, mixed oxide carbonate in them, which are very difficult to separate and differentiate in mining and, and in processing particularly. But true carbonate deposits are extremely rare. And um, the largest one currently in production is in Ghana. And uh, that is being 100% shipped to China for processing. In fact, it's owned by a Chinese company. So yeah, they're rare. And what, what makes carbonate deposits particularly unique is that, first of all, the mineralogy very often is favorable in terms of lack of impurities for a start, generally speaking. And what then makes it even better is that the carbonate itself dissolves readily in dilute acid, unlike the oxide ores, which are actually refractory to leaching, essentially. If one wants to take a carbonate ore, one can feed it directly into a leach circuit without any prior processing. But if one wants to do the same thing for an oxide ore, one needs to either roast it with significant energy consumption and resulting you know, carbon equivalent gas generation. And also one can go through a chemical reduction process, which then has opens up a can of worms in terms of environmental impacts and the challenges and costs of mitigating or eliminating those. So for us, carbonate is, is, is really the way to go if you have the right carbonate deposit. And we are blessed with having just that in the Kualitice Manganese project that we are working on in the Czech Republic. Okay. And just before we go on and talk about the Euromanganese project, can we just ask, so when we talk about purity, what sort of purity of high purity manganese are we talking about for the battery industry? Uh, that's when we get into the realm of secrets. Again, what, what, what we discuss uh, in the open is target specification that we have. For example, in the case of manganese sulfate of 32.34 percent manganese. Your average manganese sulfate specification in the world today is usually benchmarked at around 32.2. So this is materially pure material. But in a way, this doesn't tell you that much because the reality is, is what matters is what impurities are contained in the sulfate and what quantities of those impurities are there because they can have a, a material impact on on the quality, if you want, and the performance and the safety of the battery that like gets made with it. In the case of metal, we only speak of a 99.9 pure metal as being the benchmark, but there we're again entering the realm of secrets. We, we have disclosed that we have in our pilot plan produced materials in the range of 99.94 to 99.97, but what we don't disclose it, what, what are the key impurities that we need to avoid? That's where it is. And just sort of give us a, a, an idea of, in the processing, how much of the cost comes from upgrading the metal from, say, what a 99% purity, which is the standard high-purity electrolytic manganese metal, to, say, 
and above? The answer to that is a great deal. There is a law of diminishing returns, and, or if you want incremental, even exponential cost increase, as you start striving to achieve those higher levels of purity. There are some very tenacious <laughs> impurities that are, that are hard to remove without affecting other parts of the product or of the process. And uh, the cost to deal with those can be significant. And on top of that, then you're getting into the realm of some challenging reagents that can have environmental issues uh, on their own. We believe we have managed to strike a perfect balance in the process flow sheet that we have developed for the Qualitize uh, Manganese project. But uh, you're absolutely right. A great deal of effort and cost is entailed in the purification process. And to be able to do that reliably at scale is a fine art. Excellent. So coming on to your project now, and it's located in the Czech Republic, so it's in the EU, and it's focused on an old tailings deposit. So Actually, what you're doing is you're effectively reprocessing existing mining waste. Is that correct? That's correct. There is absolutely no mining involved in this process. The material is essentially fine, loose sand, unconsolidated, free digging, and right on surface as well. It's not in a pond. It's in, it's in piles that are above ground. So very, very simple extraction process. Then there's you know, all kinds of other benefits here uh, to, to the project that, that relate to that. Uh, the minerals in these tailings have already been liberated through previous milling. And uh, fortunately for us, we can produce a concentrate for extremely low cost by running this through very simple conventional magnetic separators and then feed that concentrate into the plant. Okay. And uh, can you give summary of the assumptions that you've got for the project at the current time in terms of capex, opex, etc.? We have approximately 49, 50,000 tons of annual manganese contained production assumed in the project. The base case has one third of that being sold as metal and two thirds being sold as sulfate. The capital cost is about $403.9 million. And the, the all-in cost of production, say, if you just use sulfate for a, for, for a benchmark, and that includes you know, delivery to customers, including Asia. But actually, if you want, I'll give it to you with, without delivery, sort of as a mine gate cost, is in the order of about $1,000 a ton for, you know, during a life of 25 years. And I'm not sure what else you wanted there. Yeah, I think that's fine. And, and I, I think it's worthwhile giving a mine gate cost because, of course, you're located very close to the center of the European EV and battery sort of development area within Germany, Poland and Hungary. Are you seeing demand? Are you seeing more localized demand from the, from the EU as well as from potentially Asian users? Thanks for that prompt, Matt. That, that, that's a really good observation. Our initial plan, based on our understanding of the market, was to spread the production to different jurisdictions. We saw markets in Japan, Korea, markets in North America, 
and markets in Europe. But what has happened since we came out with our PEA in early 2019 is just a dramatic transformation of the picture in Europe. And as it stands right now, um, given our understanding of market requirements for these high-purity manganese products, we could easily sell our entire production in Europe. And uh, that, that has a not insignificant impact on our, on our cost. But uh, at the same time, we can see the, the, the interest on the part of the customers. And um, especially that they're looking for a cleaner, greener product. And, you know, we, we tick so many boxes on that front. You know, no mining, made in Europe. We don't have, we're not moving ores from Africa and then sending it for processing in China and then sending the processed material back to Europe. There's so many benefits to this that we think, you know, we could easily sell our entire production with, within Europe and not even come close to meeting a large portion of that demand, just the wow. European demand. What's the timeline for future developments over the next sort of six months or so? We're in permitting right now. We filed our EIA notification in late June of this year. We initiated our feasibility study in uh, November of last year. And our goal is to have both of those completed before the end of next year. We also have a plan to build a demonstration plant, which is a seven times scale up of our pilot plant and uh, to start producing large multi-ton samples for customer supply chain qualification, which is an area that many underestimate how challenging and, and, and time-consuming that process is, but it's one that we've, uh, we've initiated now on several fronts, which then sets the stage for us to begin negotiating offtake agreements. And we already have five MOUs with customers intended to become such offtake agreements. And many companies who I speak to say that they've noticed that the availability of green finance is much higher over the last couple of months. Are you noticing that the financing conditions seem to be easier than perhaps six to 12 months ago? Well, there's no doubt that uh, in virtually every conversation we have with providers of finance, whether that be equity or debt, um, that is that there is a great deal of emphasis on sustainability aspects of it. Everything from ethics, community, social components of the project to the environmental footprint. And the same goes with the customers. There's, there's, a, there's an incredibly strong now focus on making sure that they don't have reputational risk, that they can actually clearly sell products that are produced sustainably from sustainably produced raw materials. So that's across the board. And yes, we can see the increased emphasis, certainly over the course of the last year or so. And obviously, this is from the sort of the company sort of situation. But what do you think that bottom-up equity investors are missing about the stock? Manganese, and particularly high-purity manganese, has been flying under the radar for so long. It hasn't had the, the, the glamour, if you want, or the hype that you saw around lithium, around cobalt. And it's just been flying under the radar. It's the forgotten battery material. 
on top of that, not a lot of people are speaking about it because there's so few of these projects that, that actually make sense you know, anywhere in the world that make economic and environmental sense. And um, the vast majority of the production, in fact, all of the production of these high-purity products right now is in private hands. 93% of it, approximately, is produced in China. And the other two projects are in private hands. So you don't have people in equity capital markets, you know, banging the drum and telling the story. We're, we're among the rare ones. We certainly have the most mature, advanced project of any in the world right now. For us, it's, it's been a challenge of educating the investing public who just doesn't have any familiarity with the intricacies and details of this challenging but incredibly promising business, especially you know, for a project like us when we stand a chance to become Europe's only primary producer of these products at a time when it is particularly focused on achieving a true autonomous supply chain for its electric vehicles. And at the same time, you know, you know, here we are trying to push a project that if it was in production today would be by far the largest high purity manganese metal producer in the world. And that was one of the big takeaways from Tesla's announcement uh, yesterday when they revealed to the world that they plan to produce in very, very large scale or at a very large scale, a revolutionary new battery whose cathode is made up of one-third manganese, which on top of that, and this was the one, the part that I guess we want to emphasize, that the cathodes would be made directly from manganese metal. And uh, I tell you, it's, it's easier said than done to produce these very high-purity manganese metal products that are required for such batteries. So um, we feel very good and, and in many ways, like I said at the beginning, vindicated about our prospects and um, the work and, and incredible effort that our team has put into getting this project to where it is today, which is uh, a lot closer to being shovel-ready and producing than any other project of its kind in the world. Excellent. So please note, I must disclose that I own shares in Euromanganese. Marco Romero, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Matt. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for October. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.